Hi, I'm Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, and I hope you're all doing well during these fluctuating and interesting times. Today, I'm pleased to have as my guest, Drs. Eric Ruderman, a member of the editorial committee of the Journal of Rheumatology, and Dr. Michael Putman, and both from Northwestern University. They are the authors of an editorial entitled Learning from Adversity, Lessons from COVID-19 Crisis, which is available now as an open access article on the journal's website at jroom.org. Eric and Michael, I want to thank you for writing the editorial and agreeing to talk to me and trying to ignore my dog who's eating my foot. <laughs> First, please summarize the main lessons that can be learned from the uh, SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. So summarize your feelings. You know, I, I think the main thing we learned and the main point of our editorial is that um, humans are adaptable. This got thrown at us uh, at a speed that none of us could have anticipated, and it forced us to make changes in our workflow, our clinical workflow, our academic workflow um, that, you know, initially seemed amazingly daunting. Um, but uh, with uh, effort and with cooperation, um, we not only managed to, to handle all that, but we learned a few things that may change the way we, we function uh, even after the pandemic is over. Michael, would you like to add something? Yeah, no, I think that's very apt. I mean, I think we've learned a lot about, um, you know, how we were able to respond. I, I think a take home for me that's been uh, surprising and somewhat somewhat distressing is just how uh, vulnerable our specific patients are to changes in the supply of our medications. But that's a side issue and not necessarily what we wrote about here. <laughs> okay. Um, so in the editorial, you commented that you actually had a good response from your patients, that it was generally positive to um, telehealth. And I'll tell you personally, I found that patients seem to really like this. And do you wanna, is it still true in both your practices? It, absolutely true, Earl. I mean, uh, you know, the patients appreciated the opportunity not, you know, as people are scared right now and they appreciate the opportunity not to have to go out. They appreciate the opportunity to connect with uh, us and with their physicians. Um, without putting themselves at risk coming down to the hospital. Northwestern is a major medical center in Chicago. We have a huge um, COVID-19 population right now in the hospital, in the emergency room, in the outpatient areas, and patients are aware of that, and, it, and it's daunting. Um, so they don't want to necessarily go out. They don't want to come into the medical center, but they do want to communicate with their docs. And we found, and I've tracked this, I run our practice, and I've tracked this, we, we are doing about somewhere between 80 and 90% of the visits that we were scheduled to do um, before this all hit. Um, you know, the, the fascinating thing is that, um, that we were able to do it so quickly. I mean, we've talked about telemedicine for years and, you know, talked mostly about all the challenges and how difficult it was going to be and the issues. And, and when we had to do this within a week, we were, we were doing a hundred percent and, the docs like it, the patients like it. Um, you know, it's not the same as, as being in person with somebody, but at least there's a connection there. Um, we started doing all initially telephone. We're starting to do some video visits now, more and more. Um, 
you know, again, that's not any, there's a little bit more personal connection there, but you can't really examine somebody over a video, um, but at least we can do it and the patients are happy. Want to add something, Michael? Yeah, no, that's been, I, I, I would call myself a teleskeptic before all this, uh, all this happened, <laughs> but, and I have been genuinely surprised by how much people have been grateful for it um, and have responded well to it. Uh, I, I do think there's some of what, uh, what Eric is talking about, whether people are concerned about coming to hospitals right now, very justifiably so. And I think at least for the foreseeable future, I think people are just very grateful that it exists. I'll be curious to see how that evolves uh, as the risk from COVID slowly goes down. But um, I don't think that's happening in the near future, at least. So I, I suspect that we'll be doing this for quite some time. You know, interesting. Anecdotally, I was doing uh, clinic visits this morning, and uh, one of my patients was a retired physician. And I, and I told him, you know, at some point, I'd like to sort of see him in person so I can lay hands on him and, and see his hands, see what's going on. And he said, I ain't coming to Northwestern and getting in that elevator anytime soon. So we're going to have to put that off for a while. I mean, he was very definitive about it. There was no way he was coming in to see me in person in the next few months. No, I agree. And it amazes me that how patients do love it. And I would say the funny part, um, my practice where, you know, we tend to have young adults who, tend not to want to come and tend to say they're coming, they don't, but you trap them with this. In fact, you said you're 90% or 80%. I'm over a hundred percent of people actually showing up. And so, because they act and they love video, right? They're techies. So they love this. So, and uh, what amazes me too, and you can tell me about what it's like in the States, the Ontario system had developed Ontario telehealth network and which is, privacy and everything. And they're actually reaching out and making it work. And our hospital has gone out to Zoom Health now, which is protected and has all the privacy things in. So I think there's always, when there's money to be made, some tech firm will help us. Right. The so next question is, um, yeah, it sort of gets to this. You, you mentioned it about the actual telehealth with a video versus, um, seeing the patient versus a phone call. So to address the seeing the patient, of course, it's not quite the same, but just find money difference between phone calls versus actual video. I think yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I've found three things that I've that seem to really define the difference between them for me, at least. Uh, the first one is is really just that when you can't examine the patient, I find myself feeling somewhat insecure about some of my, my decision-making. Uh, and I, I, I think that that's one of the things that draw me to rheumatology in the first place is that we're very reliant on the physical exam. So I do think that some degree of inpatient visits will be necessary in the future. And I'm, I'm looking forward to doing more of them. <laughs> uh, but the, the other two things that I, I didn't anticipate quite as much, um, one is just that there's a lot of subtle clues that you get from seeing someone, their body language, uh, you know, little glances at their spouse or partner, and 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 those sorts of things are really useful in, in tailoring how you how you interact with a patient. And I found it a little challenging when you don't have those things. Um, uh, and so I, I think those are the the two the two main differences that I've found. It's also there's just a component of being a doctor that's just so based in uh, physical contact and touch that 
conveying empathy and comforting people is just much, much easier in person. So I, I find that I've been surprised at how well visits can go over the phone, uh, despite all that. But I think like, like many others, I, I'll be looking forward to being able to do some of those things again, get to talk to people, see their cues and, and really be able to, to, to interact in a more human way. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it may change with time. I mean, right now people are just so happy to be able to talk to us and meet us. And, and, you know, the video sometimes helps, although it doesn't substitute for, um, examining someone, you know, that someone goes, well, look, this is what's going on with this knuckle. I mean, you, you, you can't really tell. I mean, I can sort of see and you nod your head and say, okay, but, you know, you do the best you can. Um, you know, the challenge I found is that tech, the technology, the video often can get in the way. I mean, it's not, a, you know, when I do a telephone visit, I do a telephone visit. It's easy. You call a patient, they talk to you. There's never any problem. There's never any issues. The audio quality is fine. It's all good. You know, when you do the video visits, not all the time, but uh, 20, 30% of the time, there's some issue. You can't make the connection. Their, you know, phone isn't a great phone, so their resolution on their side, they're kind of blurry or pixelated or they fade in and out or you lose halfway through. And that gets sort of distracting and, and takes away from the visit when that happens. Um, and, and so when that happens, it's sort of less ideal than a phone visit where you could actually just talk to somebody and engage in a conversation because it interrupts what you're doing. Um, when it works well, it's nice because you can talk to them face to face. You know, right now, the first thing patients say is, well, no, hang on, I'm, I'm socially isolating. So, I, you know, I don't have my makeup on. I haven't had my hair done. And they start by apologizing. Um, but you get past that. And, um, I, you know, look, we're all rheumatologists because we like seeing our patients. I mean, that's why we go into this field. This is a field where we take care of people for years and years and years, and we get to know them. We get to know their families. You know, we know everything about them, and there's that connection. Um, and you can't really do that on the phone. You can do it a little bit better at video than you can do it in person. So it's a step in the right direction, but it, it, it you know, it, it's all sort of grades along the, the, the continuum. Great, thanks. And um, do you think there's much of a difference between consults and follow-ups? Do you find it harder for a consult? I mean, obviously, we always love, especially when a consult actually touch the patient we were getting at. So. You know, it, it's consults are hard because of the certainty thing that, that Mike brought up. I mean, that's the issue is when, you know, when you, when you do a consult, you want to be able to finish and say, okay, here's what I want you to do. Or... You know, you've got rheumatoid arthritis. We're going to start you on methotrexate or we're going to start you on a biologic therapy, whatever it is, or change therapies. And when you can't actually see, I mean, look, that's been a rule of thumb of mine for years is that I don't make a major change in therapy remotely. I want to see you in person to talk about it, to make sure you understand what we're doing. You know, if I'm, you know, it, I mean, if I'm changing from one TNF to another because they've lost response, that's one thing. But if you're going to change to a different class of drugs, if you're going to start a biologic for the first time, if you're going to start methotrexate for the first time, I like to do that in person because I, then I know that we both know where we're going with this and they know what they're getting. And so, um, you know, it's hard. And, and I think sometimes there's this um, th this kind of sense that maybe you should put off those changes until you can see somebody in person. But more and more, it's clear that's not happening anytime soon. And so you have to be happy with this sort of degree of uncertainty and be willing to, to make the plunge and start somebody on a new, you know, course of treatment, knowing that it's, you're not a hundred percent sure you're doing the right thing, but 
you're 98% of the way there, and that's the best you're going to do. Michael, I want to add to that. Yeah, it's funny. Just yesterday, I diagnosed and started treatment in someone for giant sarditis, and it was all those limitations were just such an, such an issue. The other thing, though, that I found especially problematic is also filling in some of the testing that I would like to do. So I think it's really stretching our diagnostic acumen when you don't have diagnostics to make those sorts of choices. Um, but yeah, I think that's another aspect of them, you know, has been challenging, but I think a lot of us have gotten more comfortable with, with. Great. Yeah. You know, and I would add, you know, the other thing I was, I think about this, I mean, in some ways, this is another piece of being a rheumatologist and, and, you know, we over the years have become comfortable with a certain amount of uncertainty. I mean, we've all had patients who come to us after seeing a lot of other doctors and, and we end up being the ones who say, you know, I don't really know exactly what we're going to call this, but somebody's got to treat you. And I'm willing to, to, to make that call and to do that. And so, you know, that's something that we have to sort of look back on and say, we, we've done that before. We've been, we've been willing to say, listen, you know, decisions have to be made, even if they're not under the best of circumstances and, and you give it your best shot. And, and as long as you're, you know, as long as you and the patient understand that and you're both on the same page, then you move ahead. Great. It would be interesting. Um, maybe we'll think about this if it goes on for another six months to see how we feel. Yeah. Six months different. And especially us gray-haired or gray-bearded versus such a nice, clean, black hair, <laughs> nice brown beard, Michael and Eric, somewhere between the two of us. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> So you mentioned in your article about reimbursement and that was <clears throat> the hindrance and that insurers are now doing it and the Center for Medicare and Medicaid are doing it. Do you foresee that in the future, one, that you may do some patients who are local via telehealth? And do you foresee, the question is, it's a guess, of course, do you foresee that the powers that be, the i.e. the insurers, will allow you to do that the same amount of remuneration, which always has to come into this. You know, I, I this is something we've been watching a long time, and, I, and I'm our practice director, so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of attuned to this to sort of figure out, and I've been sort of thinking about what are we going to do when we can get back to live visits, and I, and I think that this is, this, the genie's out of the bottle. This is here to stay. Um, the patients like it. The physicians it, it, it like it. You know, we're not going to do all of them, but there are a lot of routine visits where they're sort of check-in visits that, you know, even if the patients are local, you know, for Northwestern, it means get in a car, coming down, paying the park, coming upstairs. I mean, it's a production for what may be a 10 or 15 minute, 20-minute visit or something. It's a couple hours or more out of their day just to do that when maybe you can accomplish it just as well on a video visit or a phone visit. So I think we'll be doing more of that. Um, and I think the insurers and, and uh, CMS, Medicare, are going to have to acknowledge that. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, now that we've gotten used to doing this, it may not be the same. I mean, we're working under sort of emergency authorizations right now where telehealth gets, you know, reimbursed the same as a live visit. I don't know that that's going to be the case and it won't be, but it's also not going to be the case where it's going to be a reimbursed like a brief telephone visit with just a few bucks because that's not going to work. That's not a good business model. It may be somewhere in between, and I think it'll acknowledge the fact that when you're doing telehealth visits, um, you don't have the staff that you necessarily need to support. So overheads less, you don't have the office. So 
you know, you can legitimately potentially do it for somewhat less. I don't know how much, you know, 80%, 70%, I don't know, somewhere in there. But I think we're going to get there. And I think we're going to do more and more of these. And my anticipation for our practice is probably 25, 30% of our visits are going to be telehealth going forward, even when we can get back to full-time live visits, because it works. Yeah, and I... I could see a hybrid model developing along those lines that would actually be pretty effective where you see new patients in person, establish rapport, do a physical exam, and then, you know, maybe a quick follow-up to make sure that they're doing well with their medications, um, you know, would something that be very amenable to a telehealth visit and then interspersed between the two. I could imagine a model like that being pretty effective and uh, something that both patients and insurers would would appreciate as long as they can figure out the dollars and cents part of it. Yeah, I think so. I think this is, as you point out, I think it will revolutionize what we do in many ways for the better. Next to us, has it really affected your patients who require infusions? Has that been an issue? It certainly was something everybody feared. So how are you handling that? I'll feel that because I had I had to deal with this right from the beginning. I, you know, I run uh, we have an infusion center that handles all of our non-oncology infusions. So we right. handle infusions for GI, for, for pulmonary, with their interstitial lung disease patients, on rituximab, et cetera. And, and this was a, this, these were decisions we had to make right from the beginning. And, you know, there were a number of issues. Patients didn't want to come in. Um, the nurses were understandably nervous about who was coming in. We had to worry about social distancing. And so... You know, we we move some of the infusion chairs around so they're not next to each other. Um, our institution went to universal masking, you know, a couple of weeks into this. And so nurses, patients and masks. Um, so, you know, it changed the way we did it. But, you know, look, people have to be treated and we managed to keep up with that. It did force us to take a look. There are some patients getting infusion therapies that have sub-Q options, self-administered options. And we've We've tried to move some of those, and actually we've had some success, um, even with the Medicare patients, of moving them to self-injectable drugs to try to limit the number of people we have coming in, and the patients don't necessarily want to come in. I mean, it's a challenge because our immune, our, you know, our infusion patients are, by very definition, uh, immunocompromised to a certain extent. These are all people who are on, you know, immunotherapy, you know, immune-modulating drugs. They're they're often older. They have underlying diseases. They're exactly the kind of people you don't want exposed to this virus. And so we had to limit that exposure as much as we can. Um, but it's worked reasonably well. Um, the other thing we're coming across now, which has really been sort of interesting for us, are the patients coming out the back end. And we've got patients who've had COVID infections and are uh, ready to come back in for infusions. And that brings up a whole new set of challenges. When is it safe to retreat them? When are our nurses and the other patients safe to have them back in our clinic? And, you know, with limited testing, that was a problem. I think we've gotten to a point where we're able to get um, testing on these patients. And, and so our standard now is um, at least two negative tests 24 hours apart. Um, then they can come back in and they can get treated in the infusion center so they don't put everybody else at risk. Um, but that's another challenge that we're struggling with. So you haven't gone to universal testing of all your infusion patients prior to long We're not there yet. We don't have, yeah, it's, it's you know, I, I would love to. And, and, and certain places in the hospital they have. So for procedures they have, certainly for surgery they have. Um, they're doing it for um, endoscopies now. I, you know, I think those are somewhat different because the risk of exposure is a little bit higher. 
um, there may be some anesthesia involved and exposure to, you know, um, to to respiratory droplets, et cetera. But um, and it's also it's it's a it's a, um, it's a logistical challenge, right? Because we can't do I mean rapid testing. If we can do turnaround rapid testing in twenty minutes, thirty minutes, maybe. But if they have to come in that morning and get tested and then be able to get it in the afternoon, there's logistical issues to that. Having them come the day before doesn't always work because that's two trips downtown. Um, so we're not there yet. I don't think we actually have the capacity to do that yet. When we have capacity for rapid testing, yeah, that's what we probably should do and ultimately will do. Um, we're just not, not at a place we can do that yet. Great. And the last question. Um and this is one that comes up all the time at Northwestern. Have there been many outbreaks within healthcare workers that you guys know of? Mike, I'll let you take this. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure how this was going to go. So I actually got COVID, um, but I did not think I got it from Northwestern. I, uh, pretty confident I picked it up at the grocery store. Um, I, <laughs> Uh, we have had staff. I certainly can't make any specific mention right. of, of that, but um, you know, I, it's it's a very infectious disease, and there's a fair bit of it in Chicago. So we there have certainly been healthcare workers here who have got it, including myself. But I can't hold Northwestern accountable. Um, my experience within our institution has been that um, they've actually had uh, adequate PPE. Um, you know, that's uh, certainly not something that everyone has, um, you know, had the luxury of experiencing. So, I mean, I, I think. Oh, I've been grateful for that. And it seems like we've definitely caught up at this point. But, um, you know, I think that PPE is a really important issue. And there are certainly places that have not. So, I mean, I think that it's a, it's a really good thing to acknowledge. Well, I'm glad to hear that you have adequate PPE. I mean, it's so important for sure. And I think that's the way we have to protect everybody at the high end, you know, for right at the front lines. Nice exactly. to you. you look great after COVID-19. <laughs> you look great after coronavirus. I guess you just had coronavirus. Uh, it's been a couple, it's been a couple weeks. I think I tested positive almost three weeks ago now. So it's been, it's been long enough for me to, to, you know, uh, put on a, uh, a professional shirt and professional attire. <laughs> yeah, thank goodness. I mean, we, we've had a couple other folks get sick, not uh, both staff and, 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 um, uh, providers and you know, fortunately, nobody terribly sick. And we've been, and then, and as Mike said, I don't believe any of them were um, at the hospital. You know, and that's what we're watching very closely. Um, and and it's still an issue. So we have faculty, you know, um, and and you mentioned the gray beard girl. I mean, you know, the the older faculty are are appreciably you know nervous about exposure because they're at higher risk and. That's something we've had to think about as we sort of figured out our staffing and how we could do the land. So, um, and it's something we're going to be struggling with for a long time, unfortunately. Absolutely. So, um, I've had all my questions. Do you want to close with any comments that you want to add that we may have missed, or are you guys happy? Whatever. Bear first. Uh, you know, no. I think we've covered it all. I think you know this. This has been a challenge. I think we've 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 handled it well. Um, I have to say that, you know, everybody in our group, our physicians, our nurses, our um, support staff has has jumped right in. I mean, there's been it's been an incredible collaborative team effort to make this work, which is the only way it was going to work is that everybody sort of chipped in. And, it, and it's been really good. And, and we've been very successful. 
Um, and I think out of this, we've learned um, some things that can change the way we do things going forward. And, and that's our next challenge is to, is to take what we've learned, figure out um, what's going to really help us take care of patients better um, in the future and, and weave that into our practice and weave that into our structure. And, and, and I look forward to doing that. I think it'll be really interesting. Mike, anything? Yeah, I think that's really well put. It's been a fun interview. Thanks for having us. Um, you know, I think that our, our paper was to some degree about silver linings. I think uh, what Eric said has been a silver lining for me is just seeing how uh, well colleagues have stepped up and just um, just really appreciative of all of the people who have made this happen and all the hard work that has gone into adjusting to it. So it's been certainly a challenge in a lot of ways, but you know, you learn a lot about people and um, I've learned just unambiguously good things about my colleagues through all this. So it's been, you know, it's been, there's certainly a silver lining there, I suppose. I guess we have, and it's, it really was more upbeat than you usually hear. And I do appreciate the article and I want to thank you both for this interview. It was good even with the, is that the Chicago flag in the background that I hear? There it is. All right. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> So I want to thank everybody who is listening, and please read the full-length editorial entitled Learning from Adversity and Lessons from the COVID-19 Crisis by Drs. Eric Ruderman and Michael Putman, as well as all our other special editorials on the SARS-CoV-2 infection and COVID-19, its effects and implications for rheumatologists and rheumatology practice. It's at the journal www.journalrheumatology. Dot org uh, backslash COVID-19. And if you have any questions or comments, I really encourage you to either send us messenger, a message by Twitter or at jroom, at jroom, or email us at manuscripts at jroom.com. And I want to thank everybody for joining and may everybody keep healthy. Thanks. Thanks for having us, Earl. Stay safe. Thank you. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm.